up on today's show, vaccine certification, proof of vaccination. It's here. Like it or not, you're going to have to have it. And our province doesn't really seem to have much of a plan in place. We'll also talk about what's going on. Some doctors raising the alarm about the fourth wave could be the worst one yet. And Afghanistan is a lot like Vietnam. And at the same time, it's not at all like Vietnam. There are parallels, but there are differences. All right, so talking about this new reality that we're living in, and it's the reality, like it or not, it's where we are. We're going to have to prove that we're vaccinated to do all kinds of things. Um, or you've had a negative test, of course. You don't have to be vaccinated. You can get the negative test result as well. But um, that's that, that's the way it is. Uh, you know, you're talking about travel, you're talking about entertainment venues, all kinds of different things. Some employers will require it, uh, and there will be legal challenges around some of that stuff, and we'll see how they shake out. But let's just accept the fact that that's where we are. If you want to go to an Eskimo game or a... Stampeder game. No, Stampeders are still good, I think. It's uh, Flames, uh, Oilers, Jets, you know, all the hockey teams. If you want to have a seat, you're going to have to be vaccinated. So that's where we are. So why don't we have a system that makes this easy? We're going to chat now with Dr. Timothy Caulfield, who is a University of Alberta professor in health law and policy and a Canada Research Chair in health law and policy. Doc, thanks for joining us this morning. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me on. So, I mean, first of all, let's just break this down. I mean, because... You know, sitting in this chair, I get a lot of people yelling and screaming about this is ridiculous. You know, it's 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 like it's like Nazi Germany. It's a communist dictatorship, blah, 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 blah. We need to set the parameters here. The fact is the vast majority of Canadians are fully on board with this, right? Vast majority. Yeah, that's right. If you, if you believe the surveys, and there have been several... Uh uh, in some jurisdictions, it's over 80% of people support this. Nationally, it's over over uh, 75%, think it's 76%. So there's strong support for it, and there's only a small sector that are, you know, no surprise, you know, strongly against it. Yeah. And I say no surprise, it's, it's the same cohort that are strongly anti-vax, I, I suspect. So, yes, there is strong support for this. And as you pointed out in your intro... This is happening. Yes, it's you, know, you can say, yeah, I, don't want, I don't want this, I don't like it, but it's happening. So, you know, my position is, let's do it right. Let's do it well. Let's make this easy, not just for Albertans, but for the private sector. Yeah, I agree 100%. Like, we, we, you can be upset about it all you want to be. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that it's there, and you're going to have to live in that system if you want to do certain things. So when we take a look at what other provinces are doing, um, BC announcing they're just going to come up with a card. You know, you can have a digital one, or you can have a hard copy, whatever the case may be. Same thing in Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, right across the province or a country. That seems to be a pretty smooth system, Right. It it does. It does seem, and, and I think that, you know, the language of passport and all the talk about privacy and um, bureaucracy, I, I think it makes it sound more ominous than it really is. We're just talking about a system that allows you to efficiently tell people what your vaccination status is. So, you know, a card uh, or something electronic, makes it makes total sense. I've got two kids that live in the United States. One goes to school, one works there, and they have that, you know, that CDC card we've seen yeah, so much yeah. online. Hey, they pull it, carry it in their wallet, and they pull it out when they need to. And and that kind of system makes, you know, a whole bunch a whole bunch of sense. And then you, and and from a privacy perspective, we have to remember you're still controlling that information. You know, you can choose to pull it out or not pull it out. And so I think the privacy issues are also often overblown. Well, and the other privacy issue, it's not, I mean, this is just a card. You could have a card that just says this person is fully vaccinated. That's it. There's no health information being disclosed whatsoever. Uh, That's right. And and I think it's often, even we we saw the Privacy Commissioner of Canada talking about the potential for privacy issues. It was almost like you were going to give these individuals access to your health records. Exactly. Yeah, here's the chart from the doc. 
yeah, it, that, that's not what's happening at all, right? And that's not what we've seen in other jurisdictions. The other thing I think is really important to, to note, Che, is that, is that in jurisdictions where this has been rolled out, so France and Quebec, we have seen an uptake in vaccination. Yeah. And I think that, you know, those are the complacent community, those who are slightly hesitant. They go, okay, well, maybe I'll, you know, get around to getting this done. Believe it or not, there's still people out there who follow in that demo, demographic. So, um, you know, there's that benefit. And the other thing I think is really important to recognize is, yes, vaccines do slow the spread. You know, the Delta has, you know, caused some questions uh, around how the degree to which that's the case. But, but evidence tells us it does stop the spread. Not only does it protect, protect you and reduce hospitalization and severe disease, it does help slow the spread. And, and of course, that's the reason that a lot of these facilities are, are adopting this policy. And we take a look at what we do have in effect in our province right now. And you know what? I think it's going to get better. I think we're looking at it right now and saying, oh boy, it, it just doesn't work that well. And it doesn't. It can be clunky if you've tried to use the My Health records. It's not smooth and streamlined. Um, I think we'll get there at some point. It'll, it'll, some of those bugs will get worked out. But it's still not as simple as the other provinces that just have a card or a digital card, or even the one that the feds say they're coming with, up with at some point, where you know, you, you'll just have this record on your phone kind of a thing. Just making it that much more simple, I think, would reduce a lot of the resistance that people have to it, right? I, I, I think so. You know, I, I, I took a screenshot of my Alberta Health. I don't know what, how, how you've done that. You know, it looks, it looks ridiculous. And, then, and think about the guy, you know, who's, you know, getting paid minimum wage, maybe working at a door someplace, and he has to check this stuff. You know, let's make it easier for that person, too, right? You know, I, I think it just makes sense across the board. And you're right, you know, there's going to be legal challenges. Yeah, oh yeah. People are going to, you know, that's going to happen, and, and it'll be interesting how it plays out. But... But uh, I, I personally don't think there are sound legal pr- principles that create hurdles here, uh, especially if you consider appropriate accommodation and deal with equity and access issues. Um, I, I, this is happening. Oh, yeah, absolutely, it's happening. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, like, in terms of the negative test result, at this point, uh, Doc, you, you can still get free testing, I think, right? But will that apply to this? Do you know, has that discussion happened in terms of if you don't want to get vaccinated, but you'll provide a negative test result? Is that going to come to the cost of, of that person on their own? That's my sense. You know, yeah. I think this is uh, the you know operationally what we have to figure out. I don't know if you've had to get. I was I've, I've been on one trip and I had to get. You know, it was a work trip, and I had to get tested. It's not cheap. It's not cheap if no, you pay for not. it. You know yourself, right? So that's going to be a, a big incentive for people to get to get vaccinated. And of course, that's what you know other jurisdictions like France. You know, that's what they were hoping, and, and it and it panned out. Um, and the federal government, where do they fit into this? I know they've really taken a hands-off approach and they don't want to bigfoot the provinces, but at some point, having a federal vaccination certificate makes a lot of sense. It does. You know, you don't want this. To, you want it to be uniform uh, yeah. across the uh, across the country, and also for traveling, right? You know, so we don't have the. You know, if, if you're going across the border, we have all these different forms of vaccination uh, cert, uh, cards. So you know, let's let's make it uniform. But uh, but I do think you know the the first logical step is is for the provincial government. It really kind of falls under their jurisdiction largely too, right? To to, to step up and and make this happen. Yeah, exactly. And we'll see if they do. Um, interesting discussion. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate your time. Thanks very very much. Dr. Timothy Caulfield, who is a University of Alberta professor in health law and policy. Decision Canada. Um, Yeah, when we talk about uh, the issues that are affecting Canadians right now, COVID is at the top of the list, right? It always has been. Although when when we talk to Canadians and the pollsters do, and they find out what's important as we head into this election campaign, 
Um, COVID has slipped down. It used to be the number one priority for a long time, for obvious reasons. Now it's not quite as high, but that might be changing a bit because uh, if you've been paying attention, you've heard doctors recently talking about a fourth wave. We're entering a fourth wave. Here it comes again. Some doctors have gone so far as to say the fourth wave uh, could be the worst one yet. And I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that when we've got uh, such a large percentage of the population vaccinated. But uh, we haven't talked about cases on this show in some time because, um, frankly, I don't know if the cases matter that much. If you're vaccinated, the case count, you can still get COVID, but you shouldn't end up being very sick. So what I've been more interested in is the hospitalizations, the severe outcomes. And unfortunately, here in Alberta, we are seeing those numbers tick up once again. Um, I don't know if we're at the crisis levels we were before, but certainly the trends are heading in the wrong direction. So I figured probably a good time to get an update from the front lines. And um, when we do that, we rely on Dr. Shazma Mathani, who is an ER doctor at the Royal Alec in Edmonton. Uh, and she joins us now. Uh, Doc, always appreciate you taking a few minutes for us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me today. Just give us an update. What are you seeing? I mean, in terms of COVID cases, we know they rise, we know they fall. Where are we at right now in terms of what you're seeing in the uh, emergency department? Well, I mean, as you were just saying, we are in a fourth wave. Um, We are in exponential growth right now. uh, And we're certainly seeing a reflection of that, not only in the case numbers, but also in what's coming in the hospital. So um, I would say over the last two to three weeks, um, I've definitely noticed an increase in the number of patients who are coming in uh, with respiratory symptoms that end up having COVID and definitely also an increase in people who have who are having to be admitted to hospital and to ICU. And there is that straight line, right? I mean, we we talk about people being vaccinated, so case counts aren't nearly as important as maybe they once were. But still, we know with an increase in cases, ultimately, a certain percentage of them will end up in hospital. I mean, that, that, that straight line is there. It may be a little different, but it's still the way that this goes from one thing to the next. Absolutely. So, I mean, as you mentioned, it's it's so, so important to get vaccinated for multiple reasons. I mean, if you do end up getting COVID, the likelihood of you having a milder illness is is, is much better, right? You're likely going to have very few, if any, symptoms. Um, and so, all, all, you know, really important to get vaccinated to protect yourself and others. But anytime somebody gets COVID, there, there is always a risk sure. of, of a severe outcome, right? And so um, much higher in the unvaccinated, but not impossible in the partially or fully vaccinated population. We're certainly seeing a reflection of that in hospitals. Yeah, exactly. I think the latest numbers from the province, 85% in hospital, not fully vaccinated, 95% in ICU, not vaccinated. So, you know, 15% of people who, who are in hospital are vaccinated. And I don't think that's a surprise, right? Because we knew the vaccines are not 100%. They're great. 85% is awesome, but it's not Mm -hmm. 100. And it's not 100, and especially with Delta, right? And so that's kind of every time the virus mutates, it, um, you know, becomes more virulent in the sense that it's more infectious and can have more severe outcomes. and, and, And the vaccine is a little bit less effective against it, right? And so the concern, of course, with, with no, uh, really no, meaningful public health restrictions in place right now where we let COVID just spread um, at its will. Yeah. Uh, every time the virus replicates, uh, there's a risk of another mutation there where we might, where there might be a variant that develops, right? And so that's the concern. It's not just about, you know, case numbers and maybe not so bad outcomes. It's we don't want an even worse variant than Delta as Exactly. Well. Yeah. Um, okay. So as we've said, fourth wave here, um, you went through the first wave, you went through the second wave, you went through the third wave. <laughs> Contrast them for us. Is it different now that we've reached this high level of vaccination in terms of the kinds of patients you're seeing? Is it a different age group? Um, is Are they presenting in different ways? 
or is this just basically the same thing that we saw the first three times? It is different uh, in a few ways. And so, um, you know, just in terms of the case numbers alone, they're certainly climbing a lot more quickly, probably for, for multiple reasons. I mean, the transmissibility is one thing, but also just that there are no real um, public health restrictions in place right now, right? And so there's that. Uh, in terms of what we're seeing in hospital, like certainly it's different in, in that um, most of the people that I'm seeing that are swabbing positive for COVID are unvaccinated um, or partially vaccinated. Uh, and so definitely a, a different scenario, definitely seeing younger people who are needing to come in the hospital um, because that is certainly the largest largest group that um, has a big proportion of unvaccinated yeah. in that group. And so, yeah, the demographic has certainly changed more towards the unvaccinated. And, and unfortunately, because young people are um, not getting vaccinated as readily, we're seeing a lot more uh, people under the age of 40 coming in. Um what about kids? I know we're heading back to school here and a lot of people are wondering, you know, what are we going to do in terms of masking? What are we going to do in terms of all these sorts of things? Because under 12, you can't be vaccinated, so you don't have an opportunity to use that safeguard. Are you seeing more kids? Because, I mean, like I said, they can't be vaccinated. So are they sort of moving to the front of the line in terms of people that are getting infected more often? Well, certainly anecdotally, when I, you know, when I work in the pediatric emergency, I'm seeing much more positive cases. Thankfully, you know, so far it's been relatively mild illness, but school hasn't started yet, right? And so for the most part, um, people are still outdoors right now. They're not uh, indoors uh, and certainly not indoors for hours and hours a day in school. Um, And so I'm very, very concerned about what, um, you know, early September is going to look like in terms of school reopening. Thankfully, some of the big public school boards uh, in Alberta have instituted restrictions on or measures on their own. Um, it is certainly disappointing to see that the province didn't put those those measures in place for the safety of every single student in the province. Um, and then, of course, you know we know from the United States that uh, that Delta affects children in more severe ways, mm-hmm. right? And so, the more cases we see, it's just like we were saying before. The more cases we see, the more severe outcomes we'll see, and that's going to happen across all age groups, including kids, unfortunately. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, Just help me explain this to me as a medical professional. When we're talking about entering a fourth wave, it's hard for me to understand how it can be a fourth wave like the third wave, the second wave, and the first wave when 77% of Albertans and over 80% of Canadians are vaccinated. Like, um, I understand there's still going to be cases because there are the unvaccinated and there are breakthrough infections and things like that, but it just seems to me rationally the numbers should be much much, much, much lower. Yeah, so um, they should be if you just look at the 70% on its own, right? But you have to remember that's an average of the entire province. And so there are still some parts of the province that are 20% vaccinated. And so we're going to see, like, and so we've we've seen this in Medicine Hat, for example, with low vaccination rates and and a big outbreak at their hospital, for example, or in the North Zone, lots of outbreaks and lots of cases up in the North Zone. Um, In fact, the positivity rate up up in the North Zone, I was looking the other day, is like close to 20%. Um, So these large pockets within the province that have relatively uh, very low vaccination rates are driving up those numbers for sure. Um, And then also we have to remember that, uh, yes, 70% is good, but that's 70%, 70, 75% of eligible people. So there's that whole... Um, you know, six hundred over 600,000 people under the age of 12 who are unvaccinated. So if we look at the entire population, it's closer to like 60, 65 that are fully vaccinated. So that number just simply isn't high enough. And with Delta as well, we know um, that it is 
it's a worse form of the virus, essentially, right? And so um, it's just, it's causing more cases and more more hospitalizations just because it's, it's a more severe strain of the virus. Uh, in terms of this fourth wave um, and the impact on the healthcare system, and, you know, we saw crisis levels with the second and the third, uh, where are we at in terms of, you know, beds and ICU capacity and all those sorts of things that really became an issue for the second and the third wave? Are we, are we nearing those levels or is there still some room to move here? It's a bit different this time because um, although we may not have as many patients in hospital as the third wave, for example, that wave was particularly bad in hospitals um, right now yet, uh, right. the staffing situation is much different during this fourth wave. And so we're now coming out of, you know, 18, more than 18 months of going through this um, where people are very burnt out. Um, you know, staffing, staffing levels are certainly reaching crisis uh, crisis levels right now. And so, um, again, you know, I've always said a bed is not a bed without the people that make the bed, right? And so, yes, there might be physical beds. Yes, there might be physical space. But when we're short on nurses, short on doctors, short on other frontline front healthcare workers, I think it's going to become problematic um, and at a critical level much more quickly during this fourth wave, just simply because of human resources um, not being as available. Dr. Mathani, I appreciate the update. Uh, always great information. Thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Shazma Mathani, who is an emergency room physician at um, the busiest uh, ER in the province, and one of the busiest in the country, the Royal Alec, uh, in downtown Edmonton. The situation in Afghanistan appears to still be pure chaos. Uh, they are getting people out, though, by the thousand. Uh, Canada yesterday announced that they got about 500 and some out on a flight. The U.S. is reporting tens of thousands. So I think they're pushing about 80,000 people evacuated over the last 10 days or so. So they are getting people out. Um, all the allies are working on this together. You show up at the airport, you get on a flight. It doesn't matter if you're going to Canada or the U.S. or Germany or Poland or wherever. Uh, the allies will get you out. No doubt it is a very messy final chapter that was expected by most observers to happen eventually. The speed of the collapse, though, and the chaos that has ensued, uh, I think, has been surprising to most observers. Uh, It has people drawing parallels to the chaotic end to the Vietnam War 50 years ago. And uh, the pictures are sort of jarring, right? And they they bring back a lot of those memories. Uh, Let's talk a bit about parallels with Vietnam. There are some differences there, too. We're going to chat with Eugene Lang, who is a lecturer and adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University uh, and uh, also works with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, Mr. Lang, thank you for your time today. appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you for having me. When we take a look at what's going on in Afghanistan right now, I mean, and the entire conflict itself, there are some parallels with what happened in Vietnam, for sure. I think, you know, right from the start, when you take a look at, originally, uh, the coalition forces and, in the end, American forces allying themselves um, with a force that, in the end, turned out just not willing to continue the fight, right? Yeah, I think that's that's certainly one of the parallels. I mean, they both started more or less as counterinsurgencies, both of those wars with the Americans working with the indigenous or local forces, both in South Vietnam and in Afghanistan, where they essentially worked with NATO countries to build an army, build security forces. Um, And the Americans fought on the ground, as you know, in both countries for many years. So did Canada and other NATO countries in Afghanistan. Uh, And now uh, we see a fairly precipitous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, 
the U.S. withdrawal from South Vietnam was a somewhat slower process, and the South Vietnamese army lasted a lot longer. Yeah. But eventually it, too, collapsed in the face of the enemy, even though it was a Western-trained force, a Western-financed force for many years, a Western-equipped force with pretty sophisticated techno- technology for that period of time. And it's, you can say exactly the same things about the uh, Afghan National Security Forces today that, as you pointed out, collapsed apparently in a matter of just a few days after the final 2,500 American forces and 15,000 civilian contractors withdrew. So it seems to me we've got two pretty clear lessons here that going in and equipping and training, and you can do all of those things with these forces, but if they aren't willing to carry the fight, um, all that doesn't matter. Well, that that's a, a comment that's been made a lot now in the U.S., uh, and I, I think it's got a lot of wisdom associated with it. James Clapper was the first one that I saw a couple of weeks ago make this point, or a week or so ago, that you can't buy the will to fight. It right. was essentially his distillation of the of the problem uh, in Afghanistan. $2 trillion of the U.S. money spent in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, plus a lot of money from other NATO countries. I think Canada probably spent... $40 billion, maybe, or tw- at least $20 billion during its time in Afghanistan, all in military, uh, official development assistance, reconstruction funding, and so on. Um, but at the end of the day, if the forces, as well-trained as they may be, as well-equipped as they may be, if, if they aren't prepared to engage the enemy, uh, things can unravel pretty quickly. And the question is, why weren't they engaged, prepared to engage after really only a few thousand U.S. forces withdrew. And this is, I guess, a question that analysts and scholars will chew on for many years. When we go back to the beginning, and you were involved uh, when, when this whole NATO coalition started back in 2001, you were part of the discussions in, in, uh, regarding the Canadian involvement. What was the plan? Was there a plan? What was the long-term? I mean, we knew the initial thing was to go in and deal with al-Qaeda. Okay, fine. Beyond that, was there a plan in place? Well, do you mean a plan from the U.S. side or a yeah, plan yeah, from the Canadian yeah. side? No, well, there really wasn't a long-term plan on the American side in the early 2000s. Uh, they had achieved the initial objectives, as you just pointed out, very quickly, in a matter of weeks, actually, uh, and were trying to consolidate their authority in Afghanistan. But, you know, they'd taken over a country that really didn't have a functioning government even before. The Taliban regime didn't control the entire country. Uh, it was a pretty medieval state of affairs there in many ways. I visited Afghanistan a few times in the early 2000s, and it had been a war-torn country for decades. It had to be rebuilt. There was no ba- a lot of the basic infrastructure wasn't there. I remember the first time I went to Kabul in 2003, 60 or 70 percent of the buildings were destroyed from the results of the Civil War. Um, and the Americans didn't really have a plan. Uh, right after 9-11 or even a year or two later, a long-term plan to deal with reconstruction or what some refer to as nation-building. This started to gradually develop over time, Mm -hmm. and the Americans looked to other countries to take on a lot of this burden, particularly, um, in one instance, Canada. Uh, The Secretary of Defense had been um, in the early 2000s, wanting Canada to take on a major role in this connection, and we did for, for a number of years. 
So we've talked about the parallels, and I think, you know, when we see the pictures coming out of Afghanistan, it really is reminiscent of the fall of Saigon. But how are these conflicts different? Because, I mean, they're not carbon copies of each other. No, and there's all kinds of differences, I think. Uh, there's similarities that the media are picking up on, and, you know, the fall of the two capitals is the, is the yeah. similarity of the moment. Um, and there are striking parallels there, I think. Uh, notwithstanding what the president says in the United States, he dismisses the parallels. I think he's completely wrong about them. They're striking parallels. They're obvious. To me, the big, to me, the big difference, there's a lot of differences, but the big one is the United States had no choice but to withdraw from Vietnam in the early 1970s. They'd lost 58,000 troops, about 140,000 wounded. It was the most divisive issue in American politics by the early 1970s and had been for years. Two presidential elections were essentially fought over the Vietnam War. Um, it, cr- it caused all kinds of civil unrest in the United States in the late 60s, as we know, in the early 70s. It wouldn't have mattered who the administration was in Washington. The American public was exhausted by Vietnam, and the American government would have had to have pulled out American forces. That, to my mind, is not the situation in Afghanistan today at all. This is kind of a forgotten war in the United States. I mean, they've suffered a couple of thousand fatalities, which is tragic, over a 20-year period, though, uh, almost twice as long as they were in Vietnam, for 5% of the casualties, 5% of the fatalities. It has not been a top-of-mind issue for Americans in the last two presidential elections. Uh, For some American politicians, it's been something that they've made commitments to do to this withdrawal, both Trump and Biden. But I think uh, it was clear to me that Biden had options here. He didn't have to follow through with what Trump had sort of negotiated. Um, That kind of political pressure in the United States, like there was in the early 70s in respect to Vietnam, did not exist today. And I actually saw a poll last week that said, now something like half of Americans think this precipitous withdrawal was a bad idea, whereas two or three weeks ago there may have been 60 or 70 percent saying it's time to bring the troops home. But it wasn't a central issue in American politics the way Vietnam was the central issue in the early 70s. No, you're, you're absolutely right. If you take a look at the polling, it was, it was almost schizophrenic because I think it was about 68% that said, yeah, the U.S. should withdraw from Afghanistan, and about 68% that said, yeah, we should leave some troops in Afghanistan. So you're right. People weren't really dialed in and didn't have strong opinions one way or the other on this situation up until as recently as a month ago. Which is not surprising because typically, you know, fatalities concentrate the mind in these sorts of wars. And there haven't been, I don't think there's been an American fatality in in, uh, Afghanistan for about 18 months. And, and, you know, the casualty rate among American forces has been dwindling over time as their presence has been reduced over time. It hasn't had that kind of intensity in the American political discourse that Vietnam had. And it's never had that. I mean, there there was never any... Street protests or whatever, yeah. Well, also, the other thing, too, remember, Americans were always confused about why they were in Vietnam. Even the American political class was fairly confused about it. Americans were not confused about why they were in Afghanistan, at least originally. They they knew that that is where, there was a consensus view that that is where the terrorists that perpetrated the 9-11 attacks were trained and came from, and that that government, so-called government, of the Taliban back then, harbored them, and there was no misunderstanding on anyone's part about why the United States invaded. Vietnam was a much different kettle yeah. of fish in that connection. It was always, 
you know, a bit unclear exactly. I mean, there was the domino theory and there was other theories, but Afghanistan wasn't like that. So in my, in my view, at least, uh, Biden had options. He chose this option for whatever reasons. Again, this will be chewed on for a long time. And, uh, and it's been at least badly executed. I think we can all agree oh, on sure. that. It's been terribly executed. I would argue it was a huge strategic policy error to begin with, but certainly the execution of it has been abysmal. It's been a disaster. So, um, you know, with the uh, perspective of history, when this is looked at 50 years from now, the way Vietnam is today, where does this stack up? As you say, I think uh, there'll be a lot of um, picking apart what happened here. Will it be seen as a massive failure like Vietnam is now seen historically? Is this rise to that level? Is it worse? Well, Vietnam, I think, ironically, maybe isn't seen as such a massive failure now because the country of Vietnam is a unified country. It's a fairly successful country. It's relatively prosperous. It's it's peaceful, and it's kind of integrated into the international system. The United States has diplomatic relations with Vietnam. Um but Afghanistan is not Vietnam. It, did, it didn't have the infrastructure, the economy, the literacy, basic literacy levels Vietnam had to build on once mm-hmm. the war ended. And you know, Afghanistan is a very fragmented country. It's a very um, it's, it's an anachronism. It really is. When you go there, you feel like you're going back in time, right. hundreds of years, and it takes a long time to, to build a country like that into a functioning. If you could ever build it into a functioning nation state uh, that was truly integrated into the global family of nations and the global economy, it would take a very long time, probably a lot longer, well, definitely a lot longer than Vietnam took in that connection. Fascinating discussion, Mr. Lang. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. That is Eugene Lang, who is a lecturer and an adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University and a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, And as you heard, he was part of, you know, he actually, in in the piece he wrote, talks about meeting with Donald Rumsfeld and um, back at the beginning of all of this and sort of realizing that, okay, once we've dealt with Al-Qaeda, then what are we going to do? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.